Well, if you like that music, you're just going to have to come back tonight because we're going to have more. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 9 and verses 1 through 11, which is where we're going to kind of begin eventually. A few months ago, I listened to a biography of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, um, an audio version of it. I've always enjoyed Spurgeon. He was, he's probably one of the, the greatest preachers who ever lived. And he wasn't afraid of talking about difficult doctrines. He went after all the real hard doctrines, but he explained them in a way that anybody could understand. And so he stands as kind of the premier, clear, simple preacher of God's word. And as I listened to his life story, I could not help but relate to all the things that he had to go through as a preacher because I think every preacher goes through opposition. Opposition from the world, opposition from friends, opposition from other preachers and other churches and and to just listen to his story, it just kind of, you know, you just feel like, man, I know how it feels, buddy. His wife, he was so attacked that his wife actually created a huge scrapbook of all the slanderous and evil and wicked things said about him in the newspapers, set it out on a special table with the words in the front of it, blessed are you when men persecute you and revile you and say all sorts of manner of evil against you on account of me. And so that was his, his legacy. And towards the end of his life, he had established some 66 different Christian ministries. 66 of them in and around London. He wrote books, he wrote pamphlets, letters, written sermons. He was like a well-oiled machine. He established training schools for preachers who could not afford to attend uh, Oxford and Cambridge, but who wanted to learn how to preach the gospel and disciple other people. His book, Lectures to My Students, which is still in print with all the rest of his books, is in my estimation the finest book that any preacher or pastor or leader could ever get their hands on. It is so packed full of wisdom that you, when you read it after you've been in the ministry for a while, you just say, yeah, that's right. Yeah, he's, he's telling us what's right there. All the way through the book. It, it's a great book. But as I listened... I started to feel distressed because he was starting to have health problems. And I knew what was going to happen. He was going to die. He was going to die. And so as the biography continued to wind down and he was out of the pulpit more and more because of health reasons and the escalating persecution against him increased and finally came to an end, it was a sad day. I was out there just bummed out in the garage. Spurgeon died. And he had died a long time ago, but listening to the story, it was like he died right then. (laughs) Robert J. Morgan records these events in his historical devotional on this day. Quote, London's Metropolitan Tabernacle, that's where he preached, that's his church, sits across from a run-down subway station in the south of London, surrounded by housing projects, bars, and abandoned shops. It is off the tourist path, and average Sunday attendance hovers at about 300. Its successful ministry attracts young people and serves as a vital need in that inner city. Looked at another way, the Metropolitan Tabernacle has never been the same since Sunday morning, June 7th, 1891, when Charles Spurgeon preached there for his last time. He was exhausted in ministry and broken down by denominational conflict. His hair was white, his face lined, his heavy frame weak. He ended his sermon without knowing these would be the last words in the pulpit. He said, these 40 years and more have I served him. Blessed be his name. And I have had nothing but love for him. I would be glad to continue yet another 40 years in the same dear service here below, if so it pleased him. His service is life, peace, joy. Oh, that you would enter 
on it at once. God help you to enlist under the banner of Jesus even this day. Amen. That afternoon, his congregation was alarmed to hear that Spurgeon had fallen ill. He lay in bed for over a month, most of the time unconscious, sometimes delirious. London clung to every bulletin and prayer meetings were held continually at the tabernacle. Months passed. Spurgeon rallied enough in late summer for a trip to the south of France and hope for his recovery soared. Workers at the tabernacle installed the lift to save him the exertion of the stairs. But about midnight, January 31st, 1892, Spurgeon breathed his last, surrounded by his wife and a few friends in his room at a hotel in Minton, France. England was numbed by the news. And 12 days later, his funeral cortege was surrounded by 100,000 mourners as it entered the upper Norwood Cemetery in London. He was 57. He had worn himself out under the banner of Jesus, end quote. Now, maybe you have to be a preacher or the word, I don't know, but every time I read about the death of a great preacher, it just grieves me. And it grieves me because there is such a great need for fearless, faithful uncompromising preachers of the word today. And to read about the death of one is just a huge loss. Spurgeon's doctrine was sound and clear. And think of all the ministry experience that he had gained over the years. All of that wisdom from doing the Lord's work. He was the prince of preachers. He was a sage among pastors. And yet, in God's good timing, he was taken away. And God has not seen fit to raise up anyone like him ever since. And who would argue that the world is in need of more Spurgeons? But is Spurgeon's ministry over? Has it ceased? No. A hundred times no. He did not take all of his wisdom into the grave with him to be covered with six six feet of dirt. Because he left behind an army of disciples. And these disciples have done more for the cause of Christ than Spurgeon by himself could have ever hoped to accomplish his sermons and written works are still making disciples today, still leading people to the Lord and still equipping saints for the work of the ministry. And so Spurgeon, though dead, still speaks and still ministers. You know, you can light a room with a hundred watt light bulb or you can light a room equally well with 100 one-watt light bulbs. And many of us are one-watt light bulbs. But as long as all of us are doing the Lord's work, we get the job done. I, for one, am one of Spurgeon's disciples. He has taught me many things. And you, because you sit under my preaching ministry, you benefit from what Spurgeon has taught me, so you are really Spurgeon's disciple. And so here we are, being blessed by a man who was dead a long time ago. How could this happen? Because that's how discipleship works. And it goes all the way back to Jesus. Jesus was the master discipler of men, and though Jesus died some 2,000 years ago, All of us who know him are his disciples. We are disciples of Christ, though he himself personally has been dead and died many years ago. He lives now and he ministers through his word. He ministers through the Holy Spirit. He ministers through other saints who are his disciples. Have you ever thought about your discipleship tree? Just think about that. Think of how long a wall it would take to put your discipleship tree down. 
I mean, only God could unravel the complexities of it. But think of all the people who have taught you things and all the people who have taught them things and the people who taught them and all the people who taught them. It would be a mess. But imagine if you could trace your discipleship tree back, back to the 1800s and the 1700s and the 1600s, before the Reformation, through the Dark Ages, all the way back, back to the early church fathers, to the disciples of the apostles, to the apostles themselves, and then all the way back to Jesus. You have a discipleship tree, and it can be traced back to Jesus. And this is how the church perpetuates itself. It's how the church has always perpetuated itself. We learn things, we tell other people, they learn and they tell other people. And that is how it works. Turn to Matthew chapter 28, a familiar passage to many of us. But a passage that's good to remind ourselves of, it teaches us so much. So many important things are packed into these few verses at the end of Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This text is familiar to us because it is what is called the Great Commission. The Great Commission. There is a central command in this text. You know what that command is? It's not go. It's not baptizing. It's not teaching. It's make disciples. It's make disciples of all nations. That is the command. And of course you make disciples by proclaiming the gospel. By sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. You go and you have a friend and you talk to them about the Lord and eventually that person repents of their sin, places their faith in Jesus Christ, are just transformed by God's grace. You have made a disciple. When are you to be doing this? As you go. When Jesus says go, he's really saying in the process of going, as you live your life, wherever you go, as you go, That's when you are to make disciples. That's when you tell other people about Jesus. In your going, make disciples through the proclamation of the gospel. Then two things that follow that command to make disciples are baptizing. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And of course, baptizing, um, there's actually multiple kinds of baptizing mentioned in the scripture. But every believer undergoes, should, at least two baptisms. First, there is spirit baptism, and all that is, is salvation. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, the, you are born again, the Holy Spirit places you into the spiritual body of Jesus Christ. Everybody receives the Holy Spirit and you are baptized into Christ's spiritual body, the church. And if you love the Lord and if you want to obey his word, then you will get baptized with water. Baptizing by water is that process by which you are submersed into water and brought up again, symbolizing your death, your union with Christ in death, your deadness to sin, being buried, and then symbolizing your being resurrected to walk in newness of life. That's why you are baptized. That's why that ordinance is required. So that each individual can make a public declaration, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And so every believer goes through those two processes. And then there's a final little present active participle after the baptizing part. And that is teaching them to observe all Christ commanded. It might be translated this way, and to continually and faithfully 
and always be teaching those you bring to the Lord to not only know all that Jesus said, but to do all that Jesus said. And that, in a nutshell, is what discipleship is all about. And that is what we learn from our text in Luke chapter 9. So turn back there to Luke chapter 9. And follow along as I read down through verse 11. Now last week we looked at Luke chapter 9 verses 1 through 11 to see what we could learn about the purpose of signs and wonders. And before this morning and in following weeks, we are going to focus on what this text teaches us about discipleship, doing the work of the ministry. Follow along as I read. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, neither staff nor a bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. And whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Departing, they began going through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. And Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. And when the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all that they had done. Taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. But the crowds were aware of this, and following him, and followed him, he welcomed them. He began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. Now, from this text, I've singled out eight principles of discipleship from Jesus' example, which all of us should be applying to our own lives. And this morning, we're going to get halfway through the first principle. Don't even go there. Don't even go there. The first principle is this. Call your disciples to engage in ministry. Look at the first part of verse 1, where the text reads, and he called the twelve together. Now just stop there. Now, if you remember, we learned that when Jesus was originally calling the twelve, they kind of went through about three different phases. We saw this early in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus kind of called them to initial discipleship. Then he kind of called them to follow him, but they didn't quite understand and they went back to their jobs. So then he finally had to do a miracle and he convinced them, no, I'm talking about full-blown abandonment. Leave your nets. Leave your job, leave your post, leave your city, leave your, your relatives and uncles and aunts and follow me. And so they went through those stages. But here in verse 1, Jesus is calling the 12 together to just re- receive some pre-ministry instruction. They had already become disciples. They had already left all to follow Jesus. They were already in the game. They were in the ministry. They were doing it. As they traveled around with Jesus, they helped Jesus to do ministry. And they themselves were doing some ministry. But they were just learning how to go out on their own. And this passage is about Jesus sending them out by themselves for the first time. So they are doing ministry. They are in the game. And Jesus is calling them to engage in greater degrees of ministry on their own. And this is a vital discipleship principle that all of us need to understand. We all need to apply. We all need to get those we are discipling 
and send them out to do their own ministry. I think we would all agree that it's important for every believer to be involved in ministry. I have no doubt that if right now I created a little questionnaire, question number one, true or false? Is it true that God gives all believers spiritual gifts to use for the edification of the body? True. Uh, is it true that God wants all believers serving in the local church? True or false? True. I have no doubt that all of you would get that right. True or false? Those who are in the local church, who are saved, who do have spiritual gifts, and who aren't serving in the body are in sin. True or false? True. I know you would all get 100% on that quiz. And yet some of you are not serving. Some of you are not serving. As a matter of fact, I would say a good majority of you are not. And this is not good. It's not good for the glory of Christ and it's not good for the local church. There are four basic categories of people in every church. First, there are unbelievers. They're in two categories. There are those who know they don't know Christ and who aren't serving. There are those who think they know Christ and they may or may not be serving. Now, if you don't know Christ, you have to become a disciple of Christ. You have to be saved before you can begin to grow, make disciples, and engage others in discipleship ministry. The beginning, the foundation is come to the Lord, know Christ, get saved. Why is that important? Because the person who doesn't know Jesus doesn't give glory to God. The person who doesn't love Christ, who has never been really born again, who has never been transformed, they don't do anything for the glory of God. Now, granted, they may go through the same motions, do the same outward acts, look the same, talk the same jargon, but if they don't really love the Lord, if they're like Judas, who followed Jesus around the whole time but didn't know him, nothing they do gives glory to God. And I don't know if that's you, but if it is you, you, you need to come to salvation in Jesus Christ. If you look at your life and realize, you know, I don't love God, I don't love Christ, I don't love Christ's people, and I don't want to serve them, you probably are not saved. Very good chance you are not. Because Jesus said, by this all men will come to know that you are my disciples by what? Your love for one another. And if you're unwilling to serve someone, you're unwilling to love them because that is primarily how love is expressed. Not in good intentions and not in feelings, but in doing. And if you do know Christ, it doesn't matter if you are involved in ministry or not. If you aren't doing it for the glory of God, if you aren't doing it to give glory to Christ and with the proper motives, it still doesn't matter. You have to be saved, you have to know Christ, and you have to do it for the right motive. I bring all that up because God-glorifying discipleship starts at the cross, where you realize that you are a sinner, that you deserve God's judgment, that God's wrath is abiding on you. And that you deserve to be judged and to cast, be cast in hell and to suffer there for all eternity. You understand that. And you also understand that Jesus is the Savior. That He is the Son of God. That He lived the perfect life. That He died on the cross. That He was buried. That He rose again. Conquering death. And that He offers. He pleads. He commands all men everywhere to repent. And that you hear that calling. You understand that you can't save yourself. It's not about Doing good works to be saved. It's all about being saved so you can begin to do good works. And so you place your faith in Christ and Christ alone. You turn from your sins. You receive Jesus as your Lord, your Savior, your King, the ruler of your being. As Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. And they what? They follow me. Are you doing that? 
That's where it begins. God glorifying discipleship begins with knowing and loving the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you do not know Christ, then receive him now. Right now. Today is the day of salvation. But what if you are truly saved? Well, among those who are saved, there are several other categories of people. There are those who are recent converts or maybe you're new to the church. You know, you haven't just got plugged in yet. Maybe you just don't know very much. You've only known the Lord a couple months or six months or a year. And, you know, you might be serving or whatever, but you need to get involved. In whatever capacity you're able to be involved, you need to be involved. And if that is you, you need to press on. You need to learn those disciplines of prayer and Bible study and service and giving and all those things that God requires of every believer and excel and become to the place where you are a mature believer fully equipped for the ministry. And third, there are the others who are just disobedient to God. You're not committed to every ministry. If I say, what is your ministry? You don't have a ministry. You have buried your talents. You have buried your mina. You're kind of like the spare tire in a car. It's with the car all the time, but it never does anything. Like fat cells in the body. They just take up space and resources. You have no ministry you can call your own. You have no disciples. You're neither being trained by someone else, nor are you training somebody else. You're just taking up space. You are not loving God, and you're not loving your neighbor. Instead, you're showing hatred towards God, and you're stealing from your neighbor, because if you are truly saved, you have spiritual gifts, and those spiritual gifts are for the edification of other people, and if you aren't using those spiritual gifts, you're stealing. You're stealing blessing from other people, and glory from God. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 14, Hebrews chapter 11, the author of Hebrews speaks to this group of people, to those who hang around but don't really get involved in ministry. And in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 he has been talking about Jesus. The whole book is about the supremacy of Christ. And he's talking about Jesus, who is of the order of Melchizedek, who was the king and priest of Salem. And he says that that priesthood is of a better priesthood than Aaron, because even Abraham, the father of the nation Israel, gave Melchizedek a tenth. But notice what he says in Hebrews 5, 11 and following. Concerning him, that is Jesus, we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing, dull, lethargic, sluggish of hearing. Oh, that is interesting. Here the author of Hebrews is saying, you know what? I have some really cool things to tell you, but I can't tell you. You know why? Because you've got cotton in your ears. You've become sluggish in hearing. (laughs) Notice what he goes on to say. He tells us why. Verse 12. For though by this time... You ought to be teachers. Stop there. What does that tell you? They've been around so long. They've heard so many sermons, attended so many Bible studies. They have so much knowledge that by this time they should be teachers, exhorters, expounders in sound doctrine. Look at the middle of verse 12. You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. Imagine that. Imagine that. Imagine being old in the Lord, but a babe in Christ. To have received so much information, so much knowledge, and yet, you're still a spiritual infant. You're still a baby in Jesus. You still need to be taught the ABCs of Christianity all over again. This is a Bible. This is what prayer is. Jesus loves you. This you know. For the Bible tells you so. 
And why? Look at verse 13. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. He says it's because you have never changed. You're still on an infant diet. You still have the infant routine. You're 65 years old. You're still drinking milk. You're still walking around with a bottle. And when someone tries to feed you some solid food or, God forbid, a piece of steak, you kind of pucker up your mouth and... Why? Could you like milk? Don't give me that solid food. I'm a milk drinker. Period. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. That, that's what I want. But why is it important that every believer digest solid food? Look at verse 14. But solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. The reason you must learn to partake in solid food and sound doctrine, hard Bible study, diligent prayer, faithful giving, relentless serving, is because that's how you grow up in Christ. That's what it means to be mature in Christ. An older couple has you over to their house for lunch. You show up, you're walking through the living room into the kitchen, the dining room area. And you you look over and there's their son. He's 37. Big hairy arms, beard. And he's on the floor on a blankie. (laughs) Wearing diapers, drinking a bottle. Is something wrong with that? Obviously something's wrong. The guy never grew up. He doesn't know how to walk. He doesn't know how to talk. He never went to school. He never got an education. He never learned how to take care of himself. He doesn't have a career. He didn't get a wife and, you know, two kids and a dog. He never grew up. And when you look at that, you go, this is wrong. This is all wrong. Well, in the same exact way, you see somebody who's been in the church a long time and that person isn't faithfully serving and giving and praying and studying and taking other people and training them to do the ministry. Something is wrong, terribly wrong. You may be old in the Lord, but never confuse old in the Lord with spiritually mature. There are many people in the church who are still wearing diapers and drinking milk, though they have known the Lord for a long time. Jesus loves me, this I know, is about all they can handle. Don't talk about redemption and sanctification, propitiation, and the difference between general and special evolution. I can't handle that stuff. Just give me the Jesus loves me stuff. All I want is milk. And that's it. I don't want to know how someone's justified. I don't even know what justified is. And if you are that kind of person who only wants to hear and read and study the milk of Christianity... You are a babe in Christ. You are a spiritual infant. And you want milk and not solid food. You know, it's normal for people who are young in the Lord, right after coming to salvation, to, you know, learn the basics of Christianity. But it is not right. When somebody knows the Lord and yet they're still a baby, even though they've known the Lord a long time. The author of Hebrews says, for solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to do good and evil. You learn the truth, you apply the truth. You learn the truth, you apply the truth. Because of practice. The practice of knowledge is what is means to be mature in Christ. And that gives you discernment between what is right and wrong. 
What does this happen to do with our text? You're thinking, Jack, I have no idea why we got here from Luke 9, half of 1. The point is this. You cannot call other people to engage in discipleship ministry. You can't call your disciples to get involved in ministry until they're saved, until they're trained, until they want to do it. That's why it has everything to do with our text. Anyone who knows the Lord and is not engaged in regular, faithful, consistent ministry is in rebellion. They're living in the flesh. God is not hearing their prayers. They aren't blessed. I have somebody. Hey, yeah, come over to my house. I want you to do some remodel work. Okay, the guy shows up. Yeah, I need some money. All right, I give the guy some money. He disappears. He never shows up again. He never does any work. I keep sending him checks. Yeah, you know, the bathroom still needs remodeled. We can't wait till you get to it. Here's another check. A couple months pass. I sent him another one. Yeah, the kitchen needs remodeled. We're, we can't wait till that happens. Would that be smart? Well, listen, don't think God's going to be blessing you as you take the talents he gives you and you bury them in the dirt. And you don't show up to do the work. You know, I talk to a lot of people in counseling and, you know, their lives are just they're spiritually flat. When they read the Bible, nothing's going on. Their prayer life is a drudgery if it even exists. I always ask them, so you serving in any ministry? Well, no. Oh, well, that's one huge sin in your life. Well, you know, I, I and there's all these excuses. You remember what James 1.22 says? But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who what? Delude themselves. You think you can just call yourself a Christian, call yourself mature in the Lord, call yourself a follower of Christ, but not follow Christ. You are deluded. Following Christ means following Christ, not saying you follow Christ. You see, when a Christian hears the truth, it brings them to a fork in the road every time. For instance, I, I show you from the scriptures, do not be anxious. There's a fork laid before you. I say, you know, you need to be reading your Bible. There's a fork laid before you. Any command in the Bible, any instruction from God's word, any sort of thing you are to do or not do lays a fork in the road. There's the straight, narrow way to follow Christ And then there's the way of Satan. It's huge, it's broad. Many are those who go that way. And so you can either walk away from Christ and follow Satan, or you can follow Christ every time. Every time you hear a sermon, you walk out the doors. You're either going to follow Christ or you're going to follow Satan every single time. There's no other two roads. They're the only two that exist. And you commit to one of them every single time you hear any truth. Anytime you hear it in a song. Anytime you hear it driving around in your car. Anytime you hear it in a sermon or a Bible study or in reading the Bible yourself. Or anytime it comes to your mind. There's a fork laid before you. The truth creates a choice. Will you follow me or not? And if you say no... I'm not going to follow. And you keep saying that, you begin to petrify, stagnate, calcify in a state of rebellion. You quit growing, and God quits blessing, and your life is miserable. You have regressed rather than progress. You have lost your ability to articulate sound doctrine, to share your faith, your zeal, your passion for the Lord is gone. You're the spare tire. Underneath the trunk of the car, hanging around. And what is the cure? You need to repent. You need to confess. You need to find somebody and say, Brother, sister, I need some help. I realize that I have just sunk into the quicksand of complacency and I am all the way up to my mouth. I am almost dead in stagnation. I need to be involved in ministry. Help me, please. I beg you. And you know what? 
There are some who are just going to be too proud to do that. They're too ashamed to do that. And that means that those of you who are involved in ministries, you look around, you see that person, you know, I don't even know that person. I don't even know if they're involved in ministry. You go over there, hey, hi, how you doing? My name is so-and-so. Are you serving anywhere? Well, uh, uh, no. Well, you're going to be serving now. Show up at this time. I'm going to teach you how to do my ministry. We're going to go out and share our faith. We're going to go out and do something for Jesus. Rope other people in. Grab them in. And you know what? You might have to tell people in the love of Christ, in a loving way, listen, you are in sin. You know you're in sin. You need to start obeying Christ. If you're going to say that you are a Christian, a follower of Christ, then you need to start following. I'm going to teach you how to do my ministry. We can serve the Lord together. You know what? If you find out that you aren't gifted in that ministry, fine. I will hook you up with another person and they will teach you their ministry. And eventually you'll find one you're good at. In the midst of all this, there are those who think they are believers and they're growing in Christ because they know lots about the Bible. There are some people who grow up, they just love studying. They just love learning. You, you can say, okay, what's the difference between superlapsarianism, sublapsarian, and infralapsarianism? Hey, oh yeah, well, I know all about that. Well, tell me about, you know, Calvinism, and tell me about, you know, the attributes of God, and tell me about justification, and tell me about, you know, the order of the divine decrees, and, you know, the perspicuity of scripture, and yeah, 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 I got all that. You say, hey, so what ministry are you in? Oh, yes. I'm not doing that right now. I just got a new 1,400-page systematic theology. I'm reading that. These people have heads like beach balls. So swelled with knowledge, but no application. Deluded, well-educated, severely deluded people. That knowledge is for doing, not for accumulating. And you know what? You can be one who accumulates knowledge, who knows a lot about Christ and a lot about the Bible and a lot about doctrine and a lot about church history. You can actually be a disciple of Jesus and not be a believer. Turn to John 6. John chapter 6. Let me show you this. In the preceding context, Jesus has performed miracles. A great multitude has gathered. Jesus tells the multitude that he came out of heaven, that he himself is the bread of life, that whoever eats his flesh and drinks his blood will live forever. Now look at verse 60. This is John chapter 6, verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to this? In other words, what? You are the bread of life? You came down out of heaven? Listen, you're Joseph's son from Nazareth. What do you mean, eat your flesh and drink your blood? This is offensive to us. And so what did Jesus do? He offended them more. Look at verse 66. After he offends them more, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him any more. You see that? There are people in every church, people in this church who like to learn. These people followed Jesus around. They thought his teaching was magnificent. They loved it. They thought it was great. They sucked it up. They liked the miracles. They liked all of it. They went walk around a huge mob. He was like a, a educational show. But then when the hard calls to discipleship came, what did they do? Mm, later, they walked away. There's people like that in every church. They can tell you everything you want to know about doctrine and theology, but they aren't 
involved in ministry. And if you say, hey, let's get our hands dirty. Let's get into the work. Let's start following Christ. Uh, they, they just can't do that right now. They're, you know, writing a paper on uh, some, you know, Hebrew grammar point. Now, at this point, some of you may be feeling a little heat. You may be thinking to yourself, Jack, man, you know, you're kind of getting in our face. Uh, if I have, I've failed. I, I'm not trying to kind of get in your face. I'm trying to crawl down your throat. And you may be thinking, well, you know, I, when are we going to move on? We're not moving on. We're not moving on. And you know what? It's not my desire to have you leave here this morning feeling all guilty and beat up. I don't want you to stand out there and go, oh, man, I was a pummeling man. Oh, he got me, you know. No, that's not the purpose. I don't want you to leave here feeling guilty and then trying to forget about what I said all week. I want you to leave here humble, repentant, and committed to live like Jesus wants you to live. That's what I want. You know what I really want from you? I want you to be blessed. I want you to leave here more blessed than when you came. You know, there's this really strange paradox in the Christian life that just takes a long time to learn. We're so selfish that a lot of times we think to ourselves, well, you know, I don't need to read my Bible today. I mean, after all, I want to do my whatever. You know, I don't need to be listening to that sermon. I could listen to my favorite music. I, you know, I don't need to go to both services. I mean, you know, I'll just go to one and skip Sunday school. I don't need to come on Sunday night. I mean, after all, there's a ball game. You know, we, we, we have hobbies and jobs and things that are constantly calling to take us away And we have this idea that if we don't give and we don't sacrifice and we just keep everything we have for ourselves, then we'll really be happy and then we'll really be blessed. But you know what? The exact opposite is true because in the spiritual realm, God has made this paradox to be true that those who are givers are gainers and those who are keepers are losers. He who loses himself... And his life, for Christ's sake, will find it. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The servant of all. The last shall be first. We know it. And you know what? When you do ministry, you have to say no to whatever you could be doing. That favorite book, that favorite hobby, that favorite TV program, that whatever it is. You know, when you give and you're faithful to give, you know... That means you can't get that new compound miter saw. That you've been wanting it. I think all the tools you could buy every month with what you give the church. Think of all the favorite hobbies and shows and entertainments and whatever you could do. You know what Jesus said? He says, it's more blessed to give than receive. That's what I want for you. That's what I want for me. I go out to lunch with people. And you know, it's kind of strange being a pastor. But they, you know, people go, well, uh, let me buy lunch for you. I say, huh, I'm buying lunch. It's like, no, 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 I can't have you buy lunch. Say, hey, I'm buying. You need to submit to your elders. (laughs) You know why I say that? I want the blessing. I want the blessing. Listen, you can buy somebody else's lunch, but I'm buying yours, pal. Because I want the blessing. I long for the blessing. I want to give as much as I can. I want to serve as much as I can. I want to sacrifice as much as I can. Why? Because I want as much blessing as I can. And if you don't learn that principle, you'll just be selfish and miserable all your life. But man, there is so many joys in the ministry. You think you're going to, oh, well, I have to sacrifice. I have to give up my time and go visit so-and-so, minister to so-and-so. And then you go there and they minister and bless the socks off of you so much you left. Come on, man, they really ministered to me. You come away more blessed than when you went. That's how God has set it up. And some of you don't even know that. You're scared to even test the waters of it. 
Now, I know there are some of you out there, you're already serving. And I know you feel guilty too, because everybody who serves the Lord wishes they serve the Lord more. And the whole, your whole Christian life are trying to jockey and manipulate. You know, maybe I could just get by on five hours of sleep. No, that doesn't work. After a while, you're kind of walking zombie. Okay, okay, go back to my seven hours. Okay, now what am I going to do? You know, maybe I can condense these things. Maybe I can drop this thing. Maybe I can stream that. Double up and just get a little more ministry in there. A little bit more for the Lord. A little bit more for Christ. That is life. That is blessing. That is great. To know the Lord and just to be blessed that God is using you and to know that you're being a blessing to other people. It is so wonderful. You sleep good at night. Some people say, you know, do you ever have trouble sleeping? Yeah. I'm writing sermons all night, Bible studies. It's so terrible to have to think about the Bible that much. I love it. I can't. Sometimes I'm waiting there. I'm kind of tossing in bed. Lisa says, get out of bed and go to the office. It's only four o'clock, honey. Go. So, yeah, okay. You know, I can't wait. I can't wait. Get my little coffee, a little tea, have my time of prayer. Just, mwah. You know that? Oh, man, it is so good. And whatever ministry you do, it's great to just have a great ministry. And to see people change in that ministry, whether they be little ones or just praying for people, writing notes or serving and know that you're a part of the body. You're functioning in the body. You aren't the spare tire, man. You're the front. You're the traction tire. You're doing something. And if that is you, I just want to encourage you to excel still more. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. The Thessalonians, they had a lot of things going for them. A lot of things going for them. And Paul writes and lets them know that they do. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Paul says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind, notice this, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of God, our God and Father. Look down at verses 6 through 9. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Look down at chapter 2, verse 13. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. Look down at chapter 3, verses 6 through 8. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love, that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distresses and affliction, we are comforted about you, about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. Now were the Thessalonians getting with it or what? Man, they were in it, man. They were in the ministry. They were laboring and striving against severe persecution. Now notice what Paul says, chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. And may the Lord cause you to increase 
and in bound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus with all his saints. Look down at chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. Look down at verse 9. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, for indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. So if that's you, if you're serving... Seek to excel. Find that extra piece of time. Sacrifice that extra bit. Do whatever you can. Excel still more. You're never going to get up into heaven, into glory, with all the saints of all the ages, and Jesus sitting on the throne and experiencing those things which I can't even see and ear can't even imagine here on earth, and think, man, I have been chipped. This whole heaven thing, oh, I should have kept my hobby. I should have went and read more fiction books. No. No, you will never say that. The only thing you're going to say is, I was such a fool. What was I thinking? Why didn't I give more to Christ? Why didn't I sacrifice more to Christ? Why was I so complacent? I think the Apostle Paul probably thought that when he got there. You know, Satan is a wily foe. He's going to whisper in your ear, you've been a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Look at your past and how you used to obey God and used to serve in the church and used to be involved in discipleship. You know, if I was you, I would just crawl into the grave and cover yourself with dirt. He would have you die spiritually and stop serving God. He would rob you of the blessing that you receive by giving. And he wants you to think that these earthly things and your own selfish pursuits are actually going to make you more happy and more blessed than what God has promised to give you. So now is the time for action. Now is the time to realize, if you aren't already, that I need to serve Christ and I need to excel still more. And there's two reasons given the text. The the first reason we've already looked at, the second reason to excel still more is Christ is worthy of all we have. Not only receive the blessing, but because Christ is worthy. Uh, Can you give too much to Jesus? Can you serve Jesus and worship him too much? You know, you think, well, Jesus is going to say when you get to heaven, you know, you're a little overboard here, a little fanatical. I wish you didn't praise me that much. I wish you didn't, you know, study my word that much and serve my saints that much. I mean, after all, you've really, really uh, gone overboard. He's got angels that say nothing but holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come day and night, 24 hours a day for all eternity. You couldn't do it. You can't serve him enough. What's great about the apostles is they're just like us. Turn to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Disciples had left their businesses, their hometowns, their friends, their reputation, fathers, mothers, uncle, aunts, nephews, nieces, all that to follow Christ. And in Matthew chapter 19, verse 27, Peter, who is the leader and spokesman of the twelve, says to Jesus, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will, will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit in His glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Get this, verse 29. And everyone 
who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake, will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. You know, you think this person has a lot of earthly stuff. But you know what? The question is, who is the first for eternity? This life kind of comes and goes pretty quick. Who's going to be first in eternity? Who's going to be the greatest in eternity? Who's going to have the spiritual wealth, the spiritual prominence, the spiritual blessing? The greatest servants, the greatest givers, not the greatest hoarders. Now, I have more on verse 1 of 9. That's just the first phrase. Let me just send you out with these reminders of what we have learned. If you're not serving Christ, you need to ask yourself, why? Why? Is that that you don't know Christ, therefore you don't love Christ, therefore you don't want to serve Christ and obey Him? Or have you gotten sidetracked? by jobs and hobbies and personal pleasures. It's not that you can't have a job or enjoy some pleasures, but you can never do it to the neglect of what God commands you to do. Everybody needs to be involved in ministry. Every Christian does. But if you don't know Christ, it needs to start there. You need to know the Lord. Now, if you do know the Lord and you aren't following Christ... You just need to confess your sins and get involved. You either need to go seek somebody out in a ministry and have them train you, or you need to go confess and repent and find out who can disciple you, even if you don't know what ministry that is. You get somebody, cling to them, and say, I need help. For the rest of you who are serving, you find those people. And you say, come on. Come on, I'll tell you what I know. I don't know very much, but I I know this much. And I'm doing this much. You get to the place where there's so much blessing because everybody's wanting to serve. That there's never thing. Oh yeah, we need more workers. And we don't have to say that because they're lined up and they're all arguing and flipping coins to see who gets to serve next. And if you are serving Christ, be encouraged. Thank God. Praise God. For your reward in heaven will be great. You are an example to the whole body. You are a blessing to this church. You are the moving, working members of the body of Christ. Grab other people and get them involved. Distribute the load. And this is what you'll find happen. That pretty soon, when people have this serving mindset, all of a sudden there's not enough to do here among ourselves, so we're going to go out and do something in the world. And that's when the church really starts growing. And that's when what we learn here goes out into the world. Now I'm going to close with the same words that I read earlier. These are the last words that Spurgeon ever spoke in his pulpit and it just happened to match one of the songs we sang lift high the lord our banner and you remember how we do that it's by serving him that's how you lift the lord spurgeon said these 40 years and more have i served him blessed be his name and i have had nothing but love for him i would be glad to continue yet another 40 years in the same dear service here below if it so pleased him his service is life and peace and joy oh that you would enter on it at once god help you to enlist under the banner of jesus even this day amen Amen. May all of us be able to say that in our last words. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for all that it teaches us about being Christians. Father, I pray for those here who might not know you, who may have never really given their life to Jesus Christ, turn from their sin and receive the free gift of salvation by your grace. Father, may you open their hearts. May they cry out to you right now where they are sitting. 
And they cry out and say, Lord, save me, for I am a sinner and I know I cannot save myself, but I place my faith in Jesus Christ and his death and his blood shed for me on the cross. I know that you will save me. So please do it. Change me and make me new. Father, if there are anybody who needs to pray that, move in their heart to do it and save them and transform their life. For the rest who know you, I pray for those who aren't involved in ministry, they would feel so much shame and so much guilt and so much remorse and conviction that they would repent, that they would confess of their sins, that you would wash them whiter than snow, that they would leave here filled with the Holy Spirit for the first time in a long time, that they would have a excitement, a germ of anticipation welling up within them, that they are going to make changes and they are going to now become what they profess to be, followers of you. And Father, for the rest who are serving, may you bless them. May you encourage them. May you give them strength. May you give them the motivation to bring others into their ministry, that more might be trained, more might be equipped, that we might become an army in this community and this world, that we might leave the imprint of our spiritual legacy until you come back for us that we might give you more glory still. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.